Hello, I'm novelist and film critic Tim Lucas, and it's my joy and my honor to accompany you through this viewing of True Romance, scripted by Quentin Tarantino and directed by Tony Scott, one of the finest American films of the late 20th century. I presume this disc release will include Tony Scott's commentary as well as Quentin's, so I'm going to take a different, more appreciative look at this film from almost 30 years further down the road. In that time, the lives and careers of so many of those involved have changed, not least of all Tony Scott's, which came to a tragic end on August 19th, 2012. The opening song is Graceland by Charlie Sexton, whose opening lyrics go, Yes, I've never been to Graceland, never took that trip, because I'd rather think of Elvis as a crazy mixed-up kid. Sexton, who recorded his first album when he was only 16, wrote this song especially for the film, which explains why it has so many serendipitous lyrics, including a reference to a Georgia peach. Scott wanted an Elvis Presley original to be heard here, but the Presley estate wouldn't allow it. As the song continues to play, we punch into the first scene at the Smoky Bar, where the song is presumably playing here on the jukebox. The real-life location is the El Potro Bar, at 1113 San Fernando Road in San Fernando, California. The point of the song is that we all have our own unique way of looking at Elvis Presley. Love him as we might, some of us can't take all 42 years of him, and that's partly what Clarence Worley is saying here to Lucy, played by Anna Thompson. He talks about how good-looking Elvis was, how fuckable Elvis was, how even he would fuck him if he had to, you know, if his life depended on it, as he says, as if imagining himself as Elvis's straight sidekick in some absurd Nazi exploitation film that finds him and Elvis as captives under duress. And Lucy agrees. Live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse is the ethic Clarence has taken from Elvis. And in the original drafts of the script, Quentin Tarantino gave his story a pleasing symmetry by granting Clarence's wish to live and die by this motto. Trouble is, Elvis didn't actually say that. At least he certainly didn't coin the phrase, and he sure as hell didn't live it. The phrase became a popular quotable in the wake of James Dean's early death in 1955, but when it was said then, it was quoting actor John Derrick, a line that he spoke in the 1949 film Knock on Any Door. The line had actually originated in the novel upon which the film was based, written by a relatively uncelebrated African-American novelist named Willard Motley, who died in 1965. So Clarence's idea of Elvis Presley is a delusion from the get-go, but it's also a romantic delusion. And when you don't have a real romance going on, you pick them where you find them. Clarence, in his romantic idea of himself, bred in the Americana of rockabilly, kung fu movies, and Marvel comics, is the grasshopper to Elvis's master Poe, or thinks he is. Throughout this get-acquainted conversation, Anna scarcely says a word, but we can tell just by looking at her that she is just as haunted by the specter of Marilyn Monroe as Clarence is by Elvis. A lot of people have romantic thoughts about their heroes and heroines. Trouble is, too many of them died too late. The title of this film is generic in the same way the title of Tarantino's next script, Pulp Fiction, would also be. Both titles refer to a kind of magazine that is no longer being published and which has become marginalized over time, seen as trash, but nevertheless is treasured and much sought after by new generations of fans. In both cases, these titles represent a proud reclamation and revolution of genre. This sequence takes us from night to dawn in the Motor City of Detroit, Michigan. 
The steel drum composition you're hearing under me is called You're So Cool by Hans Zimmer. I suspect that if Quentin Tarantino had directed this movie himself, we'd be listening to a different piece of music here, maybe something more emblematic of Detroit and its own vast entertainment mythology. In his draft of August 1992, he suggested When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. What a cast, eh? Virtually everyone in this film went on to become some kind of star or movie myth or cinematic shorthand. It's rather overwhelming to go back and see this film again and realize what fertile soil it really was. It pretty much handed Hollywood its next two decades of currency. I had to come all the way from the highways and byways of Tallahassee, Florida. It was Tarantino's original idea to introduce Drexel Spivey at this time to give us a couple of seemingly unrelated parallel stories destined to collide, but Tony Scott takes a different tack. Coinstantaneously with Zimmer's screen credit is the introduction of our heroine, Alabama Whitman, played by Patricia Arquette. Much as Clarence has been introduced to make a predominantly vocal or verbal impression, Alabama comes to us as a disembodied voice at first, the voice of the words she's committing to a personal diary. Whereas Clarence is a more outgoing voice, Alabama's voice as a woman is more suppressed, internal, perhaps because up to now she's always been involved with abusive men. When Alabama arrives at the Vista Theater in her leopard skin coat and buys a ticket to see the Street Fighter trilogy, the film's illusion of Detroit sort of collapses the Vista is a well-known Los Angeles landmark located at 4473 Sunset. Tony Scott's screen credit coincides with a close shot of Japanese actor Chiba Shinichi, better known as Sonny Chiba, who would later play swordmaster Hitori Hanso in Tarantino's Kill Bill. The dubbed soundtrack that we hear is an essential component of the charm of the Street Fighter films, especially for those of us who saw them when they were new, circa late 1974, early 1975. I've already described True Romance as having a fertilizing effect on Hollywood cinema over the following two decades, and Chiba's star turn in the Toei Company production, The Street Fighter, had the same effect, first in Asian countries, but especially after it was bought for U.S. distribution by New Line Cinema. It was the first U.S. release to receive an X rating from the MPAA solely for its violent content, which alone would endear it to Quentin Tarantino. There were certainly other films, earlier films, that could have earned that distinction, like Mark of the Devil, whose distributor Hallmark Films got into trouble with the MPAA by promoting the film as the first to ever be rated V for violence. But it, and other pretenders like Whirlpool, or The Last House on the Left, had nudity or sexual content as well as extreme violence. Street Fighter actually complements a head blow with the X-ray image of a skull being fractured and later cuts from a crotch grab to a steaming fistful of viscera that Chiba sniffs with the sweetness of victory. Just one of the ways to confirm that this movie changed the world is that you can now get all three Street Fighter films as a Blu-ray box set and have your own date night at home. In the, in the beginning of the movie, he was hired to uh, get these, this, this guy. You've got popcorn all over you. Thanks. Can you spot a good guy? Uh, well, he ain't so much a good guy as he's just a bad motherfucker. I mean, he gets paid by people to fuck guys up, you know? 
As Clarence and Alabama exit the theater, imitating Sonny Chiba's prowess, I'll mention that their own story is going to mirror that of the Street Fighter in some respects. The Street Fighter is the story of a karate master who provides his deadly services to the highest bidder. He's initially hired by the Yakuza to kidnap a young woman, the daughter of an oil tycoon, who stands to inherit a vast fortune. He does so, but then becomes emotionally involved and trades his allegiance to become her protector against the evil conglomerate. Unbeknownst to Clarence at this time, Alabama has come to him as a mercenary. She's a birthday present sent to this theater by his boss at the comic book store. And it's only after learning this fact that he becomes committed to releasing her from her bonds to her pimp, the wonderfully named Drexel Spivey. As we fade in on their coffee and pie conversation at Ray's restaurant, which in reality is located at 2901 Pico Boulevard in Santa Monica, we see that Clarence is trying to have the same conversation with Alabama that he had with Lucy in the opening scene, i.e. Elvis, Elvis, Elvis. When he offers Alabama her equal time, she asks what he wants to know. And what he wants to know are basically her Playboy centerfold statistics. What does she do? What's her favorite color? Her favorite movie star? What kind of music does she like? Her turn-ons, turn-offs. Clarence only knows how to communicate with women by turning into a Playmate questionnaire. Nevertheless, some truth comes out of her initial evasions. Her favorite music is Phil Spector girl group stuff like He's a Rebel. When Clarence met Alabama, I'm not sure that he was a rebel because pretty much everyone likes Elvis. My own grandmother loved Elvis and owned several of his albums before I started buying my own in 1962. But I'm sure that He's a Rebel detail sticks with Clarence because first of all, he looks the part, but also, because that is the template that attracts her, a template bred from her musical preferences. And a template, it must be noted, that's led her to make some bad choices about boyfriends in the past, not to mention choices about occupation. When Clarence asks her something more direct, like, why me, she withholds the truth. The gift she represents won't really begin to be seen or understood until after they've made love. I get to check. Where to next? Can I peek? I don't peek. Keep your eyes shut, all right? All right, I'm turning the lights on. We never see the exterior of this comic book store where Clarence works, but in later dialogue, he refers to it as Heroes for Sale. Heroes for Sale is also the title of a 1933 William Wellman picture in which Richard Barthelmus plays a World War I veteran seriously wounded in the line of duty who returns home addicted to morphine. This pre-code drama documents how harshly he and other veterans were treated by the American system upon their return from the war, but at the same time underscores their continuing belief in that system, a system they fought for and continue to support, even as it puts many needful people out of work and crushes others to the ground. The film's original uncompromising cut is now considered lost, but the available version still packs a wallop. The parallel I see may or may not be deliberate, but the jacket worn by Clarence's military issue, and he is depicted implicitly as a young man of promising character who has essentially been discarded by the mainstream of society and is without a future in the standard scheme of things. His broken home has a lot to do with this. He's been let down by the American fantasy of the perfect family. He lives on the margins and survives on whatever comes his way. 
When Clarence asks Alabama if she wants to see what Spider-Man number one looks like, this is another deeply personal disclosure being offered. As originally created by Stan Lee and artist Steve Ditko, Spider-Man is not just a superhero. He's a misunderstood teenager leading the life of a superhero, whose fantasy life is at constant odds with reality. This is not quite how Clarence sees himself, but he has good reason to empathize with Spider-Man's alter ego, Peter Parker. In the early issues, Parker was shy around girls. He was a science geek who had to invent wristbands that allowed him to shoot a sticky white liquid into the faces of his enemies. The movie's opening encounter showed us how Clarence's form of foreplay went down with most women, but even if Alabama wasn't on this date for pay, she'd be falling under his spell nonetheless. He's speaking her language. By the way, we never get to see Spider-Man number one. The pages that we see are from a far more contemporary comic, and the storyline that Clarence is detailing to Alabama actually pertains to a storyline from an altogether different Marvel comic, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos which you might say provided the template for Tarantino's later Inglorious Bastards. This storyline of particular importance to Clarence hails from Sergeant Fury No. 18, published in 1965. It was the issue in which Fury's love interest, Pamela Hawley, was killed during an air raid. Stan Lee, who wrote that issue, also attached great importance to it, enough to put his star illustrator, Jack Kirby, back on the book, which he had left as a regular illustrator with issue 7. That issue is truly revered by Marvel fans, and it foreshadows the much better known and still more traumatic death of Peter Parker's girlfriend Gwen Stacy in The Amazing Spider-Man numbers 121 through 122, which may be how Clarence got around to talking Sergeant Fury trivia with the spellbound Alabama. I stress this detail because I think Tarantino placed it deliberately to foreshadow Clarence's death at the end of his original version of the screenplay. He wanted this movie to break hearts, as those old issues of Sergeant Fury and The Amazing Spider-Man broke the hearts of their unsuspecting readers. The lovemaking scene ends with a shot of the couple sitting side by side on the edge of the bed, holding hands. It's hard to tell, but the shot may imply that Clarence ultimately wasn't able to perform. Whatever happened between them stays between them, but Alabama is in a very emotional state when we find her seated outside in front of the billboard. The billboard was an invention of the production, and the car being advertised is not identified by name. What we can see are the words, the strength of experience, which for Alabama may mean her first experience of real love, and which for Clarence may mean racking up his own first real sexual experience. You're not mad? Oh, man. Can't tell you, it was one of the best times I ever had. It was. You know, I knew something must be rotten in Denmark. There was no way you could like me that much. I mean, I can't tell you how relieved I was when you took off your dress. You, you didn't have a dick. Stop being so fucking calm about all this. Go look in your house. There's a note on your TV, and all it says is Dear Clarence, because I couldn't run anymore. So I just said, Alabama, come clean. And just tell him what's what, and if he tells you to go back to Dredd... The steel drums theme returns as Alabama sheds her disguise and stands before Clarence, still more truly naked. I've been a call girl for exactly four days, and you're my third customer. I want you to know that I'm not... This is where we find the first mention of Alabama's pimp, Drexel Spivey. I'll talk more about Drexel at the appropriate time, but right now I want to talk about these two, Clarence and Alabama. 
While going back and reading a number of the U.S. newspaper reviews of True Romance, dating from its initial release, I was surprised and disturbed to see how often reviewers referred to Alabama as nothing more than a hooker, and to Clarence as a psychotic killer who lives in a fantasy world of comic books and crap movies who suddenly forced to make real-world decisions. Seriously, if that's all you can see in these characters, you need to look a bit deeper and learn how to watch a movie. So what makes these two a perfect couple? To start with, as we've seen, they both have movies in common, and they are undeterred by triple features, which tells us that they are specifically into movies as pure escapism. Why so-called trashy movies? Maybe because life has treated them both like trash. In a darkened flea pit theater, showing three Sonny Chiba movies is probably the only place these two ever could have met. Clarence certainly can't afford to pay for sex, especially at Alabama's level, Clarence's whole lifestyle is escapist. His job at Heroes for Sale almost sounds like he's living his life below the general radar, hiding out from real employment and getting paid in whatever escapist fantasies he can imbibe during his off hours. How Clarence has ended up with this gnawing need for round-the-clock escapism is somehow connected to the only other information we're given about him, which is that his parents divorced, that his father was an alcoholic, and that his mother was some kind of a handful that his father ultimately couldn't handle. We learn from our parents, and divorce is another kind of escapism. Alabama is evasive about her own past, but there was almost certainly some sexual abuse involved. Alabama is sensitive about being called a whore. She's a call girl. The real difference between being a whore and being a call girl is that a whore walks the street looking for customers, while a call girl is more elite. There's more illusion attached. Being a call girl allows Alabama the emotional displacement from the hard truth of what she does. It likens her to the call girl fantasy of this particular moment in time, which happened to be Gary Marshall's movie Pretty Woman, made in 1990. These two are a good match because Clarence needs fantasy and Alabama is one. The movie doesn't really go into this, but Alabama could easily be Clarence's first sexual experience because more sexually experienced men don't go overboard about a first encounter like he does. He's ready to commit. Notice that the film completely eschews any of the practical, even sacred details of Clarence and Alabama's marriage. We see them exiting the courthouse like a couple of people who have just robbed it. Their real wedding is shown to take place more symbolically at this tattoo shop. They've both decided to get tattoos of their lover's name, and in case the point is lost on us, Billy Idol's White Wedding is raised on the soundtrack. The music cue was specifically requested in the original script. What did you do, darling? Slapped her around a little bit, kicked her in the stomach. It was scary. This sounds beautiful. What did you do to end up with a son of a bitch like that? This is the sequence that Tarantino originally envisioned as coming directly after the opening scene in the bar. The music in the background is Skinny, Can't Get Enough by Jive Records recording artist The Skinny Boys. Skinny being slang for gossip, which is what this menacing crew is giggling over. Stories told out of school about how black and white men differ in their attitudes toward cunnilingus. This is one area in which Drexel admits to being a white man. <laughs> Nigga, you smoke enough sherm, your dumb ass will do a lot of motherfucking things. <laughs> you be up in there sucking niggas. Here we have Gary Oldman doing his very best work as Drexel. 
At the time of filming, he was seen more than any other contemporary actor as a man of a thousand faces. He had played Sid Vicious, Joe Orton, Lee Harvey Oswald, and Count Dracula. In fact, the cloudy contact lens he's wearing here was a souvenir of his Dracula makeup for Francis Ford Coppola. Already on his way out of the film is Samuel L. Jackson, making his first appearance in a Quentin Tarantino role as Big Don. There's a conspicuous edit around 19 minutes and 45 seconds where the N-word was omitted from Jackson's dialogue, and a few crude references to actress Jane Kennedy were also cut from early drafts. Filling out the ensemble cast are Paul Bates as Marty and Lawrence Mason as Floyd D. And that is all we need to know about Drexel moving forward. On the television is John Woo's 1987 film, A Better Tomorrow 2. That's Ki Lung wielding the samurai sword, but the film's top-billed stars were Chow Yun-Fat and Ti Lung. True Romance was made in 1992, A Better Tomorrow in 1987. At the time True Romance was made, only collectors on the cutting edge of Hong Kong cinema consciousness would have owned A Better Tomorrow 2, and it would most likely be a bootleg VHS or an import laser disc. So strangely enough, this detail shows us that Drexel and Clarence have more in common than Alabama. This wasn't something Drexel just happened to pick up on local commercial television or even HBO. On the soundtrack, the arrival of Clarence's mentor, his make-believe friend, is signaled by the words of Elvis Presley's first number one hit record and his first RCA release, Heartbreak Hotel. Hotel linking to the word motel which we just saw before in the introduction of Drexel, and the words, You'll Be So Lonely, resonating with the words to the song, Wounded Birds, the film's love song. The mentor becomes literal, physical, from the moment he instructs Clarence to kill Drexel, to shoot him in the face like a dog. The mentor is wearing the likeness of the golden suit that Elvis wore on the cover of his early Greatest Hits album, 50 Million Elvis Fans Can't Be Wrong first released in 1959. Ever since the story of Abraham, people have been excusing their misguided actions by saying, God made me do it, or Jesus made me do it. Back in 1973, Larry Cohen made a movie called God Made Me Do It. And there's also a book that collects documentation pertaining to such cases, written by Mark Hartsman, God Made Me Do It, True Stories of the Worst Advice the Lord Has Ever Given His Followers. Elvis is the closest thing to God in Clarence's life. Clarence has donned an M65 field jacket. There are now places online where you can buy exact replicas of this jacket if for some reason Clarence Worley is your personal mentor. The wardrobe person on this film was really on the ball when selecting this. Woody Allen and Richard Dreyfuss wear the same jacket when they go courting women in Annie Hall and the Goodbye Girl. And it's also generally the same apparel that Robert De Niro wears into his final battle in Taxi Driver. Love is a battlefield. The screen chemistry between these two is absolutely remarkable. Tony Scott's original choice to play Alabama was Drew Barrymore. He apparently had a thing for her, but also some of her recent roles had been in a similar mode, such as Poison Ivy and Gun Crazy. As good fortune would have it, she was committed to do another film, as this one was greenlit, and the script found its way to Patricia Arquette. 
whose own recent projects shed a light of consideration upon her, particularly Sean Penn's The Indian Runner and Jeffrey Reiner's Troublebound. According to an article by Ed Power, appearing in The Independent on September 9, 2018, the magic when she arrived was immediately noted. Power writes, and I quote, Any doubts Scott had about her evaporated when he saw the effect she had on Slater, who was visibly besotted. The leads would become romantically involved. It was love at first sight, Slater recalled, but working with Patricia was tricky because I was in a relationship. We both made attempts to be professional, but at that age, it was difficult, end quote. The Steel Drums Return This musical motif usually underscores moments of hope or happiness in the film. And since Clarence can't be too happy about going out into the cold night to do this, I imagine he's hoping that he's not making the biggest mistake of his life. They say that Detroit is one of the less attractive cities in the United States, but somehow director of photography Jeffrey Kimball made this little slum area look positively ravishing. He had started out as a camera assistant to Fenton Hamilton on Larry Cohen's It's Alive and to John Bailey on Paul Schrader's Cat People. His previous achievements as a DP were relatively few, but they included Matthew Robbins' The Legend of Billie Jean and three powerhouses for Tony Scott, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Revenge. In 2002 and 2003, he got to work for John Woo on the film's Wind Talkers and Paycheck. He also shot Be Cool, F. Gary Gray's adaptation of Elmore Leonard's novel, starring John Travolta and Uma Thurman, which makes it a cousin of sorts to the Tarantino universe. The music being played is I Want Your Body by Nymphomania. The man at the door is the aforementioned Paul Bates in the role of Marty. His previous credits include Exterminator 2, Hannah and Her Sisters, Coming to America, and The Bonfire of the Vanities. He recently reprised his role as Oha in the sequel, Coming to America, along with Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. This background music, I Want Your Body, continues Tony Scott's process of using the background to comment on his foregrounded action. Venus the Fool is taken. The beast in you has awakened. The urge has made you blind. Everything else has left your mind. And the title phrase, I Want Your Body, becomes a double entendre for Clarence wanting to see Drexel dead. In an interview with Jamie Portman of the Edmonton Journal, Quentin Tarantino explained, quote, What I like about Clarence is that he's not even acting in self-defense, but makes a choice to go in there and kill this pimp. I think Clarence is very human. Everything he knows about comes from the movie, so when he goes to take this guy out, he thinks he's doing what a movie does. Instead, he enters the real world, end quote. In the same article, Christian Slater said this about Clarence Worley, quote, I really like him. I don't think he's a jerk. I think he's very confused, very sweet, very sensitive. His aggression probably comes from all the movies he's seen, kung fu films plus heavy stuff like Taxi Driver and Mean Streets, end quote. This is all very true, but the same can be said about Drexel Spivey. You didn't even bother to look. You're just been clacking me. I know I'm pretty. 
but I ain't as pretty as a couple of titties. <laughs> Drexel calls Clarence out as a coward because in the midst of this confrontation, he's not relaxed enough to take a look at the sexy action unfolding on the TV screens all over his lair. But Clarence gains the immediate upper hand. To Drexel, the movie is just a pair of naked breasts, or breastesses, as he says. But Clarence fires back with the ultimate cool. He doesn't need to look at the movie, which he promptly identifies as the Mac without so much as a second glance. And he tells Drexel it's a movie that he first saw seven years ago. A 1973 film by Michael Campus, The Mac is the story of Goldie, played by Max Julian, who is released after serving five years in the penitentiary and rises to the position of king pimp in his city, much to the annoyance of the mob and a couple of crooked cops in the mob's pocket. To a self-made man like Drexel, The Mac proposes just the sort of hero that he would look up to as a personal model and hero. Goldie would be to him what Sonny Chiba or Spider-Man is to Clarence. You know what we got here? Motherfucking Charlie Bronson. <laughs> Mr. Majestic, look here. Drexel's comparison of Christian Slater to Charles Bronson is another movie reference because Bronson was often cast as an Avenger, most notably in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West and the Death Wish movies. Drexel specifically mentions Mr. Majestic, another revenge fantasy in which Bronson played a melon farmer. If you see that movie, you'll see a lot of cantaloupes being shot in blown to smithereens. And you might think that cantaloupes are a deliberate foreshadowing of something that Christopher Walken's Vincenzo Cacati says later in the picture. But Christopher Walken improvised that line on the spot. It's just a happy coincidence. If anyone in this movie is a cantaloupe, it's Drexel. Tony Scott was an interesting choice to direct this picture. First of all, he was the younger brother of Ridley Scott, one of the more iconic filmmakers of the 1980s and 90s. Tony had started out making his own films in 1969, a couple of shorts and one well-received film for BBC. But his subsequent adventures took him in the direction of working in television commercials, which he did very successfully for about 15 years. It was not until 1983 that he made his next feature, The Hunger, starring Catherine Deneuve, Susan Sarandon, and David Bowie, whose elliptical storytelling, potent imagery, and musical sensibility took a giant step toward merging music video with narrative cinema. But it wasn't a box office success. It took him four years to get another offer to direct. As he told Katie Rich of Cinema Blend, quote, Don Simpson saw The Hunger channel surfing at 3 a.m. I think he was high. And he actually saw a Saab commercial that I shot with a jet racing car. Then he saw The Hunger and him and Jerry Bruckheimer called me, end quote. The result of that call was Tony Scott directing Top Gun, the highest grossing film of 1986, returning almost $357 million on a $15 million investment. Clarence Horley? <laughs> it sounds almost like a nigger name. I don't know where you live. 4900 160th Street, apartment 48. I want to point out here that Drexel finds Clarence's ID card inside his wallet. This is only the first time our fugitive from revenge will keep the address of his secret location in plain view. 
In this fight sequence, we see one of Tony Scott's outstanding traits as a director. He was a master in terms of action scenes. He knew how to cut action and marry it to music for maximum impact. What we see here is a perfect marriage of music and montage. Another thing to acknowledge about Tony Scott is something he said about himself in a 2009 interview with Katie Rich for Cinema Blend. Quote, I'm a plagiarist, he admitted. I always look back at other movies and I steal, but I steal well and I reinvent, end quote. The same can be said of Quentin Tarantino, and often is by his online critics who love to point out how many ideas or musical cues he's taken from Hong Kong cinema, black exploitation cinema, spaghetti western cinema, and so forth. But to say this is to miss the point. Tarantino uses these sources as knowing points of reference to produce major chords of association within the viewer. The song Across 110th Street doesn't open Jackie Brown because they're both black exploitation pictures, because neither of them really is. If we know the movie Across 110th Street, it's easier to see that what it shares in common with Jackie Brown is the fear of someone who is in or approaching their 60s and doesn't have enough money in the bank to see them through their old age because they've never lived outside the law. That's a heavy chord. And if your film viewing sophistication isn't up to catching that reference and the deeper meaning behind it, then you just miss out. And a lot of people do. I mean, Christ, he's not worth one of your tears. Would you rather have been me? Is that it? Huh? Is that what you want? I mean, do you love him? Do you love him? I said, do you fucking love him? Huh? I think what you did was... What? I think what you did... What? ...was so romantic. Clarence discovers that becoming a murderer, or maybe just putting his own life at risk and coming out of a bad situation alive, has made his senses all the more acute. The fast food burger he's cramming into his mouth is the best burger he's ever tasted. He's like a prehistoric man, sinking his teeth into a kill. As Alabama says this, you're so cool, Hans Zimmer's steel drums theme fades up on the soundtrack as it will again and again whenever a silver lining breaks through a dark cloud in the storyline. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a plot. In drafts of the script going all the way up to August 1992, which incorporated Roger Avery's rewrite of the finale, the contents of this suitcase were kept secret from us, the viewers, until Dick Ritchie gets his first look inside it. The scene we just saw, cut from Alabama saying, Clarence, those aren't my clothes, to this one in which the movie introduces Clarence's father, Clifford Worley, played by Dennis Hopper. He's singing a song to himself, or perhaps to his pet dog, Rommel. That song is Itty Bitty Tear, a song popularized by the folk singer and actor Burl Ives. And Tarantino's script names it specifically, showing an incredible insight into the character and his role in this overall drama. I think this is actually one of the most powerful associations of character to song that I've ever taken notice of in a film. The lyric, an itty bitty tear let me down, spoiled my act as a clown. In the context of the song, a lover's confession of his own false bravado in the face of his loved one's leave taking. This foretells not only Clarence's imminent return and immediate departure from his life after many years sped apart, 
but also what Clifford is later obliged to do in order to protect his son's life, the way he stands up to Vincenzo Cacati and his men by going into his bravura story about how the Moors conquered Sicily. Of course, the itty-bitty tear in that case will be Clarence's handwritten address, left in plain view on Worley's refrigerator, which makes the entire confrontation unnecessary. With our first interior of the trailer home in which Clifford Worley lives, one of the first things we see is that aquarium, which brings back to mind that fierce body slam of Drexel's against the wall of aquariums in his digs. The character details the film gives us about Clifford Worley were all part of Tarantino's early scripts. He's clearly identified as a security guard. It is quite specific that he has no alcohol on the premises. That line where he says he can drink beer, but he doesn't. He's also a former cop, so we can piece together that his drinking, his addiction issues may have compromised him in some way, gotten him got him bumped off the force so that he's now divorced and wearing a badge in this lesser capacity. The role is so ideally cast, we could easily believe that these were notes that Hopper himself suggested as the movie was in pre-production. Hopper was himself a recovering alcoholic, and in his relatively brief time on screen, he creates a vulnerable, repentant, thoroughly three-dimensional character. This moment, too, when he tries to absorb the news of his son's marriage, there's so much tied up in it. In the pause he takes, we can see him looking at Alabama, who he's just met, and trying to size up whether this is going to be a good thing or a big mistake. And if it is a mistake, who is he to say so, given his own disastrous history with his son and family? There is some awful family backstory lurking between the lines here. Ain't she the sweetest goddamn thing you ever saw in your whole life? I mean, she, she a four-alarm fire or what? Barely audible on the soundtrack here is Shelby Lynn's song, I Need a Heart to Come Home To, which underscores the tensions that we feel at the edges of this reunion. As someone who grew up in the 1960s, my first awareness of Dennis Hopper came from the movies that he made in association with Roger Corman, Curtis Harrington's Night Tide, Queen of Blood, and The Trip. I didn't even recognize him as the same person in Easy Rider the first time that I saw it. I had difficulty believing that the actor and director could have been the same man. Because I wasn't into westerns back then, I had completely overlooked the impressive legacy that he'd already left behind in Gunfight at the OK Corral, From Hell to Texas, and TV series like Gunsmoke, Bonanza, The Rifleman, Cheyenne, and Sugarfoot, much less Giant or Rebel Without a Cause. But I got to experience most of Hopper's career right. in real time, as it were. But I was always intrigued by the fact, in my opinion it's a fact, that he was making incredible films at the same time so many people were writing him off as a complete disaster. Personally, he might have been, but the last movie is an incredible film. Out of the Blue is an incredible film. And I think it was that film that got him the role of Frank Booth in Blue Velvet a role that Hopper boldly told David Lynch he was born to play. But just at the time when Hopper should have been taking his craft to the highest level, Hollywood could often only find room for him in things like Super Mario Brothers, Waterworld, Space Truckers, and Meet the Deedles. He wasn't being used as a countercultural symbol so much as an avatar, a shorthand to let people know they were in for a wild ride. He also wore his penitence around his neck by playing a lot of fuck-ups. Hopper died in 2010 at the age of 74, and I would have to say that very few of the films and television shows in which he starred over the last 20 years of his life were worthy of him. But true romance, 
truly is. Without question, it's one of the very best things he ever did, and it may have given him the finest scene he ever played. When I wouldn't see you for a year and a half to two years, did I ever get in your shit about him? That whole fucking time you were drunk, did I ever get mad and point my finger at you? No, I never did. Everybody else did, but I didn't. Christian Slater was born in 1969 to a New York stage and television actor, Michael Hawkins, and a casting agent, Mary Jo Slater. And he appeared in a number of TV projects and series as a child actor. He appeared in such films as The Name of the Rose and Tucker, The Man in His Dream, but his career only started to take off with his role in Michael Laughlin's cult comedy, Heathers. His role as J.D. in that movie can be seen as a preparation for true romance, a dry run of the darker side of Clarence. The movie itself can be seen in some ways as a dark comedy variant of this story. Then followed a number of movies which we may not think of as Christian Slater movies, like Star Trek IV, The Undiscovered Country, and Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. But he scored another impressive performance in Tony Bill's Untamed Heart opposite Marisa Tomei, in which he played a character named Adam who has a serious heart condition, but nevertheless saves Tomei from a physical attack. Adam is very much akin to the shy, introverted side of Clarence. But as Slater said in an interview at the time of this film's release, he felt that he had to play Clarence because he was such an outgoing, reckless character. Everything that was in himself, that he had to suppress in order to play Adam. Now the action shifts without any preliminary topical identification to Los Angeles, where Clarence's friend Dick Ritchie, played by Michael Rappaport, is gearing up to audition for a supporting role on the new T.J. Hooker. Conchata Farrell plays Agent Mary Louise Ravencroft. You may remember her from various television series, including L.A. Law, B.J. and the Bear, Hearts of Fire, and E.R., though unfortunately not the first season episode of ER that Quentin Tarantino directed. She died in October 2020 at the age of 77. The scene of Dick's audition may seem like a one-joke situation because he's obviously been on pins and needles awaiting this meeting, and it's over in less than a minute. But Dick's particular plight reinforces the other character arcs in the picture. He's another guy in this story who's trying to make the leap from fact into fiction, which is pretty much the American dream. Well, they found nothing. In fact, they think it's drug-related. Uh, drug-related? Why drug-related? Well, apparently Drexel had his uh, big toe stuck in that shit. Really? Drexel had an association with a fellow named Blue Lou Boyle. Name mean anything to you? No. Well, if you don't hang around his circle, no reason it should. Why, who is he? Gangster, drug dealer, somebody that you don't want on your ass. Now look, Clarence, the more... Cliff here mentions Blue Lou Boyle, the mob kingpin Vincenzo Cacati works for. He remains off screen in the film, but he had scenes in Tarantino's early drafts, which stuck long enough for Robert De Niro to have been cast in the role, but it was eliminated before the three-month shoot began on September 24th, 1992. And once you leave town, I wouldn't even worry about it. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Daddy. You really came through for me. Once Clarence tells his father that he really came through for him, the steel drum theme, He's So Cool, fades up once again on the soundtrack. As before, it denotes a turn of optimism in its predominantly dark storyline. I like her. And I think you make a real cute couple. Yeah, well, now, you, you stay out of trouble. Hmm? 
Remember, you got, uh... You got a wife to think about now. Quit fucking around. <laughs> Son. I love you. My, uh, my friend Dick Ritchie's number and address in Hollywood. That's where we're going to be. Get in touch with me through him. All right. All right. Here, Clarence passes his L.A. address to his dad. That piece of paper is going to become analogous to the itty-bitty tear I mentioned earlier, which will let him down, making all the pain he's going to suffer unnecessary and his heroism in the face of death without point. I will send you a postcard. Now, Bama. Bama. Yes, sir. Take care of that one for me. Don't worry, Daddy. I'm going to keep this bell on a short leash. As the sun sets slowly in the west, we bid you a fond farewell. Some bitch is right. Mm. Tastes like a peach. Come on, Rommel. Come on, boy. Come on, come on. Now Clarence puts in a call to his Hollywood pal, Dick Ritchie, who answers, sitting on the toilet. Again, the musical cue is very much on the nose. It's Chantilly Lace, performed by the Big Bopper, the professional name of Texas singer-songwriter, disc jockey, J.P. Richardson, Jr. The Big Bopper, of course, was one of the passengers on the ill-fated plane that took the lives of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and others on February 3rd, 1959, the day the music died. The song is on the nose because it illustrates a phone call while being lyrically in the form of a phone call. There are also references to personal poverty in the song. I ain't got no money, honey. As in the dialogue when Clarence assures Dick that all of his money problems are now over. It's a promise of instant success that comes just before the overnight success that Dick has at the same time finally earned after so many years of honest trying. Dick and Clarence have been friends for a long time, but while Clarence stayed in Detroit and buried himself in comic books and triple features, Dick got himself out to Hollywood and took a positive, constructive, and most of all, realistic approach to realizing his ambitions, ambitions being the proactive form of dreams. Clarence is about to re-enter Dick's life story with his suitcase full of cocaine and his dreams of striking it rich, and it's probably the film's subtlest subplot how Clarence's fantasy situation and the extent to which he lets his life be ruled by dreams actually bump his best friend's hard work off a track that's finally headed for success. In the script, when Dick looks through his mail for Clarence's letter, Tarantino specifies that the envelopes are from Southern California Gas Company, Group W, Fossenkemp Photography, and the Columbia Record and Tape Club. It tells you as much about this guy as the opening photographs on the wall in rear window tell us about Jeff Jeffries. Floyd, you used up the last piece of toilet paper! Girl, make me act so On first viewing, this return to Clifford Worley as he returns home from work one morning comes as a complete surprise. Initially a happy one because we like him, 
But then it slowly occurs to us that there's only one reason to cut back to his trailer home. The black dog crossing in front of his car hints at this, the proverbial black dog at one's doorstep. When this other dog scampers away and Rommel dashes off in pursuit of it, we get the idea that it must be a bitch in heat and a fortunate diversion that rescues Rommel from any misadventure he might have suffered at the hands of Vincenzo Cacati and his men. And now we come to the film's centerpiece and masterpiece. Christopher Walken, immediately and effortlessly intimidating, as Vincenzo Cacati. I once got to meet Christopher Walken when I visited the set of David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, and the most surprising thing I discovered about him is that this immensely powerful actor can actually enter a room without anyone noticing him. What we see here on camera only exists between him and the camera lens. He does not have a conspicuous presence whatsoever. He once made a TV movie with Jonathan Demme that shows exactly what he was like when I met him back in 1983. It's called Who Am I This Time? And I recommend it. I've heard of Blue Luboro. I'm glad. Hopefully that will clear up the handful of shit on my question. It's important to note that Kakati gets the story of what went down at Drexel's place entirely wrong. Alabama was not present at the shootout. He also mentions that after killing everybody, Clarence in Alabama snatched his narcotics and hightailed it out of there after mistakenly leaving Clarence's driver's license behind in a dead man's hand. A, quote, whore hiding in the commode, end quote, filled in all of these narrative details. This is a key bit of dialogue, too important to lose, but it invalidated Tarantino's original intention of revealing the contents of the suitcase later. Kakati has already told us the suitcase is stuffed with narcotics in this scene, so maybe Quentin was thinking that detail might be disregarded like all the other errors in the hiding whore's account of the meeting, and it would later surprise us by being revealed as true. But it would have created a complication, a snag in the proceedings, and it was better to just play it straight. It's also better to become aware of the narcotics just as Clarence and Alabama do. It not only bonds us more tightly to them, it makes better sense of their subsequent actions. Talk to your neighbors. They saw a Cadillac. Purple Cadillac. Clarence's purple Cadillac. Speaking of that purple Cadillac, after this film was completed, Tony Scott made a present of it to Patricia Arquette. Walken is surrounded here by his entourage, consisting of Victor Argo as Lenny, Frank Adonis as Frankie, Paul Ben Victor as Luca, and stationed just behind Hopper, a young, relatively trim, still hungry young actor by the name of James Gandolfini. He plays Virgil. Gandolfini barely registers here, but he'll have his star turn later on. Victor Argo, whom you see in the background wearing a hat, brings a certain amount of baggage to this role, having appeared in Boxcar Bertha, Mean Streets, The Dawn is Dead, Raw Deal, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and Bad Lieutenant. Three years before this film, he played Roy Bishop, the cop adversary to Walken's vicious Frank White and Abel Ferrara's King of New York. Walken's preamble to this encounter is a magnificent flamboyant piece of acting, perfectly judged and enunciated. The script I've read online may have been fine-tuned later, but at one point, instead of following the script and saying that Clarence in Alabama came into the room blastin', Walken swaps out that key word and changes it to blazon, and it adds tremendously to the cinematic quality of the language. 
Of course, after Tarantino saw the results of this scene, he entrusted another classic soliloquy to Walken, that of Captain Coons, who tells the great story of the legacy of Butch's father's watch in Pulp Fiction, which is not only fall on the floor hilarious, but one of the most vicious indictments of war and misplaced patriotism ever committed to paper or celluloid. A scene like this gives me pause to contemplate the real importance of what we call cinematic. We love what we call cinematic moments or sequences in a film, those scenes where a movie does so superbly what only a movie can do, telling stories without words, through images, sustained images with scrupulously designed lighting, moving, restless images that connect like the cars of a train in what the French call plan sequence. There is no doubt that such scenes are very special, but is this sequence of one man talking and another man listening no less cinematic? How many screenwriters can you think of whose words are cinematic? Better still, how many directors can you think of who are known primarily for the way they wield the written word? There simply aren't that many. And I am speaking here of Tarantino as auteur, even though Tony Scott directed this sequence. In his documentary, Journey Through French Cinema, the late filmmaker Bertrand Tavernier singles out Sacha Guitry as being comparable to Quentin Tarantino, as someone whose films are driven by language, by how characters are defined, by what they say and how they say it. There are many examples of British talent along these lines, Noel Coward, Graham Greene, Harold Pinter. I would also include in that category Alfred Hitchcock, who seldom took credit for his script editions. Hitchcock was almost a pointillist with dialogue. Psycho, in particular, is a stunning case where almost everything that is said has some resonance elsewhere in the story. As for American filmmakers, I think we have just a few real examples, and they would be Preston Sturgis, Samuel Fuller, and Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino's particular gift is his audacity his panache, the way he loves to make an audience squirm with discomfort at times. Before I do some damage, you won't walk away from. Could I uh, <clears throat> have one of those Chesterfields now? Sure. Can I have one of those Chesterfields now is a perfectly conceived line. I can't salute it long enough. But my salute is not only for Tarantino, but also for Hopper, because these words appear word for word in the script. All of this does. But if you just read that line off the page, one tends to gulp it down, to race through it. Because the words are outrageous, unprecedented in a movie, even though something in them harkens back to the insecurities that led Othello to commit murder once upon a time. But in his performance, Hopper doesn't do that. He slows it down and plays it like a ballet dancer. He gives us the courage of a man who knows he's going down because he's not about to desert his son a second time. And at the moment he says those words, can I have one of those Chesterfields now? Tony Scott brings in a music cue, and it's not just any music cue, but a music cue that he's used before. This movie likes to reference movies? Well, okay then, he'll reference one of his own. Rising on the soundtrack at this point is the flower duet from Leo Delib's opera Lacme, first performed at the Opera Comique in Paris in April 1883, which Scott had previously used in his debut feature The Hunger under the sapphic lovemaking scene between Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve. Thematically, the opera has some bearing on the scene we're watching, as the opera itself is set in India in the 19th century, and chronicles the hatred, anger, and tragedy that results from an ill-fated love affair between a British colonialist and the daughter of a Hindu high priest. 
So there is a racial element and perhaps also a bit of a history lesson. But just as importantly, I feel the music highlights the classical elegance of these two performances, which are so perfectly modern and cutting edge on the one hand, no pun intended, but also as timeless as the oldest scenes of confrontation and bravado in the annals of English drama. Black hair and dark skin. You know, it's absolutely amazing to me to think that to this day, hundreds of years later, that, uh, that Sicilians still carry that nigga gene. Now this, <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm quoting history. It's written. It's a fact it's written. I know this guy. No, <laughs> guy. No. <laughs> no. Your ancestors are niggers. Uh -huh. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah. And, and your great, 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 great grandmother fucked a nigger. Oh, yeah. And she had a half nigger kid. Now, if that's a fact, tell me. In Tarantino's script, when Cliff says, now tell me, am I lying? He follows it with this, quote, Kakati looks at him for a moment, then jumps up, whips out an automatic, grabs hold of Cliff's hair, puts the barrel to his temple, and pumps three bullets through Cliff's head, end quote. The dialogue about eggplants and cantaloupes was improvised on the set, and everything you see between the two actors was spontaneously enacted. It's something in the chemistry of the moment, the delicacy of the reading, that demanded acknowledgement and reward from the Kakati character. I think this would not have happened had Kakati been played by anyone else, had Clifford Worley been played by anyone else. Is it racism? Is Clifford identified in this scene as a racist? Or is his history lesson a deliberate means of spitting in his killer's face by using his own racism against him? You tell me. And remember, in Tarantino's script, we still had no idea through this whole scene why the mob was getting involved. I think Tony Scott was wise in opening the suitcase to us at the same time it was open to Alabama and Clarence. We need to bond more with them than with Dick Ritchie, and it eliminates any incidental confusion that would have arisen without this information. Vincenzo's henchmen find Dick's address, the information they're seeking, posted right there on the refrigerator, right out in the open. First of all, there is no West Ardmore Street in Hollywood. Secondly, had they just taken notice when they first got there, they could have left before Clifford came home. His noble death was all for nothing. Tarantino sometimes does this in his movies. He'll take us on a long scenic tour of a subject, usually in the form of dialogue, and then something will happen to make that tour entirely unnecessary. But his point is always, look at the interesting places where that needless tangent took us. There is beauty sometimes in the gratuitous. Introducing Brad Pitt as Floyd, who looks just about as far away from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's Cliff Booth as you could possibly get, you can't help me out every now and then? Yes. It's such a great detail that she's drinking Yoo-Hoo on the doorstep. Huh? 
In Tarantino's original script, the first thing these reunited friends do is head out to Pink's Hot Dog Stand, another L.A. landmark at 709 North La Brea. It's here that Alabama explained the origin of her curious name. According to her, her mother went into labor when her father crashed the car that he was driving, presumably while getting her to the hospital. As Alabama explains, quote, Now picture this, the car's demolished, a crowd is starting together, my mom is yelling, going into contractions, and my dad, who was losing it before, is now completely screaming yellow zonkers. Then out of nowhere, as if from thin air, this big giant bus appears, and the bus driver said, get her in here. He forgot all about his route and just drove straight to the hospital. So because he was such a nice guy, they wanted to name the baby after him as a sign of gratitude. Well, his name was Waldo, and no matter how grateful they were, even if I'd have been a boy, they wouldn't call me Waldo. So they asked Waldo where he was from, and there you go, end quote. Quentin's script specified the Hollywood Holiday Inn, but Tony Scott preferred the Safari Inn at 1911 West Olive Avenue in Burbank. There is a mention of the Partridge family earlier in the film as Alabama and Clarence are getting to know one another and feel one another's tastes. And the Safari Inn actually figures as a location in a season one episode of that series, though for dramatic purposes, it was renamed the Sunshine Motor Inn. This place has a pool, complimentary parking, and the rooms go for about $100 a night. Not bad. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Dick is wearing an Elvis t-shirt that appears to be a caricature by the New York Review of Books artist David Levine, who passed away in 2009. The scenes inside the hotel room were filmed on a set, not in the actual Safari Inn. When you look at Christian Slater's IMDb page, the logline credit he is given is true romance. I don't think there's any question that this film to date has been the defining role of his career. He has continued to be active in films and television, and while he's obviously taken a lot of work to stay working and to support a growing family, he's never really returned to this level of stardom again. For a brief period of time after this film, he was the leading man. But those pictures, Murder in the First, Broken Arrow, Julian Poe, didn't grab the popular imagination, so he became the face looking over the shoulder of the leading man on the movie posters afterwards. There is something of Clarence in Slater, it would seem, between the time Heathers and this film were made in 1989, 1994, and 1997. He had various run-ins with the law for resisting arrest, destruction of public property, assault with a deadly weapon, driving under the influence, and so on. In 1998, he was sentenced to serve three months in jail, but he was released early for good behavior. Although he's been perfectly repentant, it seems to have had a negative effect on his screen career. He made no movies between 1998 and 2000, but this was also the time in which he became a father and married for the first time. As he returned to acting, he worked a lot, sometimes keeping his face out there by accepting unbilled cameos in major new releases. In recent years, working mostly in television, he's played an unexpected diversity of characters, including Winston Churchill, Moses, Mr. Robot, and surprisingly, numerous appearances as none other than himself, Christian Slater, proving that some measure of public recognition, even stardom, remains attached to his face and his name. He continues to take risks as an actor. He played Charlotte Gainsbourg's father in Lars von Trier's controversial two-part film, Nymphomaniac. And in 2003, he made a very well-received return to stage acting in a London production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 
Michael Rappaport, who plays Dick Ritchie, was a born New Yorker and started up the ladder of fame with an out-of-nowhere starring role in Anthony Drazen's unconventional neorealistic love story Zebrahead, 1982. He played Zack, a white working-class kid into hip-hop who falls in love with Dee, a black girl played by Deshaun Castle. And the story takes place where it was actually filmed, in Detroit, Michigan. So the fact that Dick Ritchie hails from Michigan links that film to this one in an interesting way. After this film, he got to do John Singleton's Higher Learning, The Basketball Diaries with Leonardo DiCaprio, Woody Allen's Mighty Aphrodite, Spike Lee's Bamboozled, and he had a couple of successful TV runs in Boston Public, The War at Home, Prison Break, and Pound Puppies. A steady, reliable working actor, he looks fondly back at True Romance as the only film he ever made that he knew was going to be great, even before it started shooting. As this group are brainstorming about the best place to meet with Lee Donowitz's flack, Elliot Blitzer, Alabama happens to see on television a glimpse of the roller coaster at Six Flags Magic Mountain in Valencia, where there are now 19 different roller coasters. This is the last place you'd expect anyone to be conducting a drug deal, and Alabama got the idea from TV. So this is another example of the film showing how outward appearances can mask the truth about people and things. Clarence is a killer, but a sweet guy. Alabama is a hooker, but a sweet girl. Dick seems to be like a real dork, but he's the only character with his head really screwed on straight. He's putting himself out there, and he's on the road to success. Elliot, played by Bronson Pinchot, is standard-issue Hollywood flack. He's outwardly a man of the world, an industry insider, a sophisticate, but with an effectiveness Clarence couldn't have possibly predicted, his thin outward veneer is totally dismantled by this ride on the roller coaster. The precise coaster isn't named, but if you step through the frames, you'll see that it's the Viper, which was unveiled at Valencia's Six Flags on April 7, 1990. According to Wikipedia, it features a 188-foot, or 57-meter, drop, speeds up to 70 miles, or 110 kilometers per hour, has three vertical loops, a batwing turn that inverts riders twice, and a double corkscrew. It was initially the tallest and fastest looping coaster in the world, but the steel phantom at Kennywood stole that title by the time this film was made. It regained the speed record in 2000 when the steel phantom was discontinued. Like your humble audio commentator, Bronson Pinchot in real life has no affinity whatsoever for roller coasters, so what you're seeing was pretty much unacted. If you watch the scene frame by frame, you'll see that he is sometimes replaced in the seat next to Christian Slater by a double. I guess he couldn't be coaxed back onto the Viper for a second go. Grappaport had a similar fear of coasters, but was finally able to get through the filming of this scene with the help of some quaaludes. Bronson Pinchot, born in May 1959, made his film debut in Risky Business, the film that turned Tom Cruise into a star. He was in Beverly Hills Cop and Beverly Hills Cop 3, but not 2, the one Tony Scott directed. I must interrupt myself to say, don't you just love the choice of product placement here? It couldn't be better. The subject of this meeting is super covert, but at the same time, its synonym is right out there in big, bold corporate logo lettering. To continue with Bronson Pinchot, he had also been featured in Martin Scorsese's After Hours, 
and had appeared in 150 episodes of Perfect Strangers, which brought him an Emmy nomination prior to making True Romance, which was only his eighth picture. His later movies have been insignificant for the most part, and his later work in films and television includes a lot of voice work for animated projects. His most recent venues have included NCIS, Ray Donovan, and The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Over the past decade or so, he's also recorded more than 100 audiobooks. I salute you, fellow commentator. Some of the titles he's recorded include Flannery O'Connor's story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, and Patricia Highsmith's selected novels and stories, which includes her famous debut thriller, Strangers on a Train. So we know his taste is impeccable. Now the action shifts to film producer Lee Donowitz in transit on another of the great attractions of Los Angeles, Pacific Coast Highway. Donowitz is played by Saul Rubinek, who is often perceived as a Canadian actor because that's where his acting career effectively began. But he was actually born in a Jewish refugee camp in Bavaria. His parents were both Holocaust survivors. He was working in Canadian radio and television from the time he was a child, and as he entered his 20s, he was active with three different Canadian theatrical companies based in Toronto and another in New York City. He had some interesting early bit parts in films, sometimes uncredited. For example, he was a mugger in the original Death Wish, but his Canadian citizenship and extensive experience came in useful when his rise coincided with that great late 1970s, early 1980s tax shelter period in Canadian filmmaking. His early roles in films like Agency and Death Ship led to a romantic lead in Jonathan Calfer's Woody Allen-like film Soup for One, which vaulted him into supporting roles in major Hollywood fare like Against All Odds and Oliver Stone's Wall Street. Though very much a character actor, he had another romantic lead in 1990s Falling Over Backwards, and thereafter he became increasingly visible in films like Brian De Palma's The Bonfire of the Vanities, opposite Tom Hanks, Man Trouble opposite Jack Nicholson, Unforgiven opposite Clint Eastwood, and Oliver Stone's Nixon opposite Anthony Hopkins. Since relocating to Los Angeles with his wife and family, Rubinek's career has focused more increasingly on television roles. Most recently, he's been doing a lot of work for Amazon Studios. He made a terrific Louis B. Mayer in their miniseries production of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Last Tycoon as the manager of the Catskills Holiday Lodge in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and he's also been a regular on the Al Pacino, Lena Olin series, Hunters. Lee Donowitz appears to have been a creative composite of two well-known figures in the film business. One was Oliver Stone, who was most popularly identified with his 1980 remake of Scarface with its Swiss Alps of cocaine, and also the Vietnam-themed projects Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. He would subsequently direct Tarantino's next script, Natural Born Killers. The other was former Paramount executive turned producer Don Simpson, who was credited with conceiving the high-concept blockbuster and produced three of Tony Scott's previous films, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Days of Thunder, as well as Flashdance. He was a well-documented cocaine addict who ended up dying on the toilet in his Bel Air mansion at the age of 52 from a reported cocktail of 21 different drugs, including cocaine, while reading a biography of Oliver Stone. 
You can read these and other gory details in Charles Fleming's biography, High Concept, Don Simpson and the Hollywood Culture of Success. Another surprising thing I learned about Don Simpson, his middle name was Clarence. He'll deal with you. If he doesn't, he'll say, fuck you, and he'll uh, walk out of the room. Do you tell him what was Shut up for a second. And he wants a sample bag. No problem on all counts. Great. Did you tell him I was an actor? Yes, I told him. You told him I was good? Yeah, I lied. Don Simpson ruled over Hollywood from his mansion in Bel Air, but this is how the other half lives in Hollywood, you might say. What Virgil sees on the TV is a glimpse of the movie Free Jack, starring Emilio Estevez, Anthony Hopkins, Rene Russo, and Mick Jagger. A reminder of how awful TV used to look in the days before widescreen and digital. A good deal of this movie is about media images and how different people receive them. Brad Pitt's Floyd is a character out of Gilbert Shelton's underground comic, The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, transposed to a 1990s time frame. He's funny, but he's also a sobering example of a withdrawn personality bent on total escapism. He's at the bottom of the heap among all these characters because he doesn't want to get involved. But he's really not all that different from some of the highest paid executives in the film industry. When I say he's withdrawn, he's withdrawn so tightly that almost everything he could need is kept within arm's reach. He's got his pillows, he's got his honey bear bong, his fan, his little canister of deodorizer, even his DVD player is right there by his feet. Give him some potato chips and a catheter and he'd be a happy man. We know how dangerous Virgil and his crew can be, but to Floyd, he might just as well be another hallucination. Yeah, okay, be cool. Me, man. That ad-lib by Brad Pitt is hilarious, but it also tells you that what Floyd is taking into his dilated senses is taking root in him in the form of a repressed violence. Brad Pitt has said that his character is not too different from someone he used to actually be. Back in 2012, Pitt told Pierce King of PurpleRevolver.com that, quote, I was hiding out from the celebrity thing and I was smoking way too much dope. I was laying on the couch and just turning into a donut, and I really got irritated with myself. That feeling of unease was growing, and one night I just said, this is a waste, end quote. Now return the bullet on the new That throwaway line of Clarence's, we now return to bullet already in progress, is all the proof we need that Clarence sees life as a TV show in which he happens to be the star. And now we're heading into a tense 10-minute sequence between Alabama and Virgil, Patricia Arquette and James Gandolfini. It's an interesting detail of the film's construction that it has a couple of 10-minute suspense sequences that are very similar. The first is the history lesson about the Moors' invasion of Sicily, and then there's this sequence. In many ways, True Romance plays exactly like any other 21st century film, but it's a 20th century film. It doesn't matter, you can still look at it as though no time has passed. However, when you look at its cast, the new generation of bright young actors it spawned, you really feel the impact of that time. And with no other actor do you feel this more so than with James Gandolfini. Of all the minor players in this film, none experienced such a quantum growth spurt as Gandolfini, and it came about entirely through his casting as Tony Soprano 
on David Chase's HBO series The Sopranos, which ran from 1999 through 2007. Gandolfini was a native of Westwood, New Jersey, born in 1961. The chain of events is pretty clear. After this film, he worked again with Tony Scott in his submarine thriller Crimson Tide. From that, he moved into Get Shorty, which was John Travolta's 1995 return to leading roles after his comeback in Pulp Fiction. That brings us up to the time David Chase was casting his pilot for The Sopranos. Casting director Susan Fitzgerald asked him to come in, based on this scene in True Romance, which really shows a lot of the different sides that we would later see in Tony Soprano. His charm, his sexual energy around the ladies, his hair-trigger temper, his natural segues into brutal violence. No, you know, no, go the other way. Okay. Gandolfini was actually cast in The Sopranos earlier than most of the other regulars on the show, which is evidence of how seminal an energy he was in the show's discovery of its own dramatic potential. Over those six seasons, Gandolfini did a good deal more than coming up with the definitive anti-hero. I would argue that he was the chess piece in the game between movies and television that suddenly made television the most important dramatic medium in our culture. The character of Tony Soprano didn't have a character arc that could be encompassed or absorbed in a single episode, or even a single season. David Chase and his team of writers, including such people as Terrence Winter, Matthew Weiner, Mitchell Burgess, and Robin Green, built him up in three dimensions, maybe four, over 86 episodes that showed him as a husband and father, as a thug and a seeker, as a man in love and a lover of animals, as a friend and as a killer of friends, as a serial womanizer and as a little boy, as an Italian in America and as an American in Italy. He was both a captive of his situation and his own captor. He was a monster. And yet we never cared more for anyone right up to the moment when the show suddenly ripped its cord out of the wall socket and went black. That night sent shockwaves through the internet and gave us some great evidence of how closely connected we had all become online. There are several great actors in this film, actors who starred in great movies of tremendous import and impact, but because James Gandolfini was in ascent when this transition took place between the two main powers of media, which gave the powerful writing behind him a greater force of intimacy with his audience, I think that he may have been the most fortunate of them all. If you think of Dennis Hopper or Christopher Walken or even Samuel L. Jackson, you think of great scenes. With Gandolfini, you think of 86 hour-long episodes that you've probably watched five or six times or more, each time gleaning more and more details, more facets of his performance. The news of his death in Rome in 2013, at the age of only 51, was shattering, again sending shockwaves through the internet. It's said that actor Tom Sizemore, who plays Detective Cody Nicholson in the film, was first cast in the role of Virgil, but he found himself uncomfortable with showing violence against a woman and asked to play one of the cops instead. It was Sizemore who suggested Gandolfini to Tony Scott, which is surprising because Gandolfini had previously worked for Tony Scott, albeit uncredited, playing, what else, a henchman in 1991's The Last Boy Scout. 
I've saved discussion of Patricia Arquette for this scene because I feel that this scene is the high point of her performance. She knows from the instant she returns to this room and sees Virgil that she's in serious trouble. The script tells the actor that she has to be flirtatious, that she has to seem a little stupid, at least to Virgil that she has to be courageous, at least under the surface at first. And then she's got to be beaten down practically to the point of no return before she sees a way out of getting killed and grabs it. Virgil makes a point of admiring the spunk that she shows while she's going down, but he really underestimates her. If you read between the lines of this film, and this character specifically, that's been a leitmotif of her life all along. A member of a well-chronicled show business family, Patricia Arquette was born in April 1968, making her about a year and a half older than Christian Slater and three years older than her adversary in this scene. She has played a number of victimized women in her career, but their brutalization is usually a prelude to her discovering unsuspected stores of strength within herself. I just want to interrupt myself here to ask, is this scene not a rewrite of the scene between Vincenzo Cacati and Cliff Worley? Isn't Virgil's admiration of Alabama as he continues to chip away at her a rewrite of Cacati's approbation of Cliff just before he shoots him in the head? And isn't Virgil's last-minute discovery of the cocaine stashed under the bed a rewrite of the discovery of Dick's address posted in plain view on the door of Cliff's refrigerator? Very often in Tarantino's films, we find a similar bivalve structure. In Reservoir Dogs, we get the preparation for the heist and the heist, which then goes all wrong and unaccording to plan. In Death Proof, we have the act that inspires revenge, and then we get a replay of the same story in which that revenge is fulfilled. Something to ponder, but back to Patricia Arquette. Her first movie role was in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors as Kristen Parker, a teenager traumatized by nightmares involving Freddy Krueger, who develops the power to draw other dreamers inside the arena of her dreams. It's in this analogy of lucid dreaming that she and other similarly affected survivors are organized by their therapist to fight back against Krueger as, quote, dream warriors, end quote. The movie is very much about turning the initially introverted troubled girl into someone more empowered and outgoing. In 1992, she made Trouble Bound as the female lead opposite Michael Madsen, whose career would blast off after Reservoir Dogs, just as hers would blast off after True Romance. Another interruption. It's hard to believe that Gandolfini was so deeply into his role that he was willing to have Arquette actually stab him in the foot with that corkscrew but wiser minds prevailed. Unless you overlook the detail, Alabama bonks Virgil on the head with a bust of Elvis Presley. I think it's the only place in the movie where his name is actually seen without obstruction. Now to return to what I was saying about Patricia Arquette and Trouble Bound, the story of that film has tenuous similarities to true romance. Madsen plays Harry Talbot, a convicted thief who serves his sentence and determines to grab his girlfriend and drive away to a new life in another town. Unbeknownst to them, his old criminal cohorts have stuffed a dead body in his trunk for safekeeping, which they suddenly need back. So throughout their escapist adventure, they have the mob on their tail. Then came this film, the flagship title on her IMDb page. Even though she's won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar and Golden Globe Award, for her work in Richard Linklater's Boyhood in 2014. She also won two other Golden Globes for her performances in the TV movies Escape of Denimora 
2018 and The Act 2019. And she has also won a Primetime Emmy and numerous other nominations for her lead role as Alison Dubois in Medium. However, the major subsequent role of her career in films is undoubtedly David Lynch's Lost Highway, made in 1997, which in some ways feels like the darker, more nightmarish side of this coin. It's another road picture, another story in which a man who is obsessed with her becomes obsessed with rescuing her from criminal captivity, another showdown from which she rises like some kind of unholy phoenix. The violence in the hotel room sequence got the film into all kinds of trouble with the MPAA, who reportedly had no problem with Virgil knocking Alabama around. They objected to what she did to him once she got her hands on the shotgun. In an article written by Jamie Portman for Canada's Edmonton Journal, Tony Scott was quoted as saying, quote, She's run out of bullets. She's exhausted her physical energy, but she manages to win through. She's fired all the bullets and then starts to beat him with the butt of the gun. It's a tough scene to watch, but I thought it was right in terms of the truth of the moment and of the character, end quote. As Portman summarized, quote, the MPAA didn't agree. It didn't believe a woman should be showing such viciousness. And that leaves it open to charges of pursuing a sexist agenda, end quote. Also interviewed for this article was Quentin Tarantino, who noted, quote, it wasn't Patricia's Alabama character being beaten up that they freaked out on. It was when she fought back so violently. That's where they wanted cuts. Maybe someone from the ratings board should see this movie with a female audience to see how they react to that scene. The way they cheer would probably freak them out even more." End quote. I've read that Gandolfini declined to wear earplugs as he was being shot to death because that's the way Walken had played his big gunfire scene but he wasn't able to hear clearly for the next three days. Take this, hold this. What are you, high? No. Fucking put this in your purse. I'm not gonna put that shit in my purse. He's not gonna search you. You didn't do anything. Now just put it in your bra. I'm not wearing it. Please, you, please, he's almost here. Just fucking put it in your pants. Just put it in your pants. No. You are the one that wanted to drive fast. Read my lips. No. They're all I did for Asshole. you, you fucking whore. Who the fuck do you think you're <laughs> Hey, look, dickhead, it's your bad luck that we caught you speeding, and it's your bad luck that you had a bag of uncut... Giving Elliot the third degree here are Tom Sizemore as Cody Nicholson and Chris Penn as Nikki Dimes, both of the LAPD. Fucking actor, you just made the big time. You're no longer an extra. Or a big player. Or a supporting actor. You're a fucking star. You are a fucking star, and you're going to be playing your one-man show nightly for the next two fucking years for a captive audience. Listen to this, you get out in a few years, you meet some old lady, you'll get married, and you'll be so understanding to your wife's needs because you'll know what it feels like to be a woman. Of course, you only want to fuck her in the ass because that pussy just won't be tight enough for you anymore. Good point, detective. Right? This is an unbilled Ed Lauder as police captain Quiggle. Lauder started out as a stand-up comic, surprisingly enough, before becoming a familiar character actor in films and on television since the early 1970s specializing in characters who weren't exactly known for their humor. He often played military figures, judges, defense and prosecution attorneys, mobsters and generals. He also frequently played lawmen in movies like The New Centurions, The Longest Yard, Alfred Hitchcock's Family Plot, Death Wish 3, and the remake of The Town That Dreaded Sundown. 
as well as television series like B.J. and the Bear and The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, in which he played the same character over a number of episodes. Ed Lauder passed away in October 2013, succumbing to mesothelioma shortly before what would have been his 75th birthday. He did the movie Coming Home in a Body Bag. A Vietnam movie? Yeah. Good fucking movie. Fucking hey, great fucking movie. So you believe him? I believe he believes. Detroit native Tom Sizemore's film career was only a few years young at the time of filming. He was previously featured as vet number one in Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July and had a recurring role on TV's China Beach as Sergeant Vinny Ventresca. He had auditioned numerous times for the role of Mr. Pink in Reservoir Dogs, but that role went to Steve Buscemi. He went on to play a similar role to this in Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers, and he's played a variety of badasses in westerns like Wyatt Earp, Michael Mann's Heat, Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan, Martin Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead, and Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down. He's another of this film's numerous players who have played themselves in something. In Sizemore's case, it was an episode of Entourage. He's an incredibly prolific actor, boasting close to 300 performances since 1991. In 2016, he authored a book, By Some Miracle I Made It Out of There, which candidly chronicles his drug use, particularly his addiction to methamphetamine. He credits fellow actor Robert De Niro with the intervention that saved his life. Just starting new lives, leaving Detroit. <laughs> Notice here that the steel drums theme returns as the wounded Clarence starts talking about their future, the good times still ahead. This is another scene in the film that mirrors another. Just as Clarence is nursing a bloodied Alabama here, she will be doing the same for him in a very similar setup later in the picture. It illustrates the yin and the yang, the perfect balance of their relationship. I always wanted to see what TV in other countries looks like. Where do you think we should go, Mama? Tell me about. Cancun. Cancun? Why Cancun? It's got a nice ring to it. It sounds like a movie. Clarence and Alabama go to Cancun. Don't you think? In my movie, darling, we did top billing. Don't you worry about nothing, all right? It's all gonna work out for us. We deserve it. The posters on the walls here, Palm Springs Weekend, Casablanca, Reflections in a Golden Eye, Act One, any poster collector will recognize that there's no common ground, no real shared aesthetic tying these movies together. It's like these guys found them at a $5 a stack garage sale. So the decor here is basically confirming that these guys just love movies, any movies. They aren't educated about movies in the way Clarence is. They probably haven't even seen these movies. But perhaps that lack of education, the lack of the sheer awe Clarence feels for the movies he loves, is what allows Dick to pursue a career as an actor. Clarence doesn't really need to do that because he's already the star of his own TV show. Thank you. Thank you. Captain. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow. Hey, man. All right. Come on, man. I think it's. Come on. I got the part. I got the part. I got the part. I got the part. 
Dick gets the good news of a callback from his audition just as Clarence and Alabama are heading out the door. But just as they are heading out, Dick calls Clarence back, and there are different theories out there about what he intended to say to him. It's one of those unresolved mysteries that helped to create conversation about a movie. Did he want to thank Clarence because he never would have tried if it wasn't for him? Was he going to tell him to hold on to that Coke because he might be in a position to buy it himself sometime soon? Just joking. Was it a moment of worry? Did he want to tell Clarence to maybe think twice about what he was doing but held back because that wouldn't be seen as cool if he let his real concern, his real love for Clarence, show? Did his announcement not get enough acknowledgement from his friend? I think Clarence gives him enough congratulation. He says he wants to hear more about it. Earlier in the film, Clarence asks Dick if he knows what it's like to be in love, and he admits that he doesn't. So is Dick going to tell him that now he knows what that kind of joy feels like? Tony Scott lets the steel drums lift the mood of the story once again, as Dick Ritchie finally feels that maybe his life is starting to move in the right direction. Chris Penn, of course, was the son of actors Leo Penn and Eileen Ryan, the brother of actor and filmmaker Sean Penn and musician Michael Penn, he started acting in films at the age of 12 in 1979. Initially billed as Christopher Penn, he quickly rose to conspicuous roles in such films as Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish, All the Right Moves, Pale Rider, and Footloose. After playing Nice Guy Eddie in Reservoir Dogs and Detective Nicky Dimes in True Romance, he went on to specialize in cop and crook roles in pictures like To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, Mulholland Falls, and two important films starring Christopher Walken, James Foley's At Close Range, and Abel Ferrara's The Funeral, for which Chris won the Volpe Cup for Best Supporting Actor at the 1996 Venice Film Festival. In 1983, he wrote, produced, and directed the film Nobody's Heroes, starring Martin Sheen, like Tom Sizemore, Penn also had drug-related problems compounded by a lifetime of heart disease, which caused him to gain a great deal of weight over the last 20 years of his career. Tragically, Chris Penn was found dead in his apartment in January 2006. He was only 40 years old. I haven't yet discussed the unusual origins of this screenplay. It originated as something else entirely, an unfinished script by Roger Avery, who was one of Tarantino's co-workers at Video Archives, a strip mall video store in Manhattan Beach, California, where Quentin had been employed since 1986 as a clerk and resident walking encyclopedia of movie lore. Avery, who was Quentin's closest friend at the store and an early champion of his screenwriting, had written something of his own called The Open Road, which had stalled at about the 50-page mark. Avery described it as the story of, quote, an odd couple relationship between an uptight businessman and an out-of-control hitchhiker who travel into a hellish Midwestern town together, end quote. He offered his script to Tarantino as a possible collaboration to see if he could finish it for him. What Tarantino came back with represented a total revolution of thought. In its original raw form, it was a conflation of what eventually became true romance and natural-born killers. In Quentin's first draft, it was a sprawling epic which started out like natural-born killers until its prison riot 
At which point Mickey and Mallory break jail and set out to find and kill the screenwriter who got rich writing a blockbuster movie about their crime spree. The screenwriter, while on the lam, ends up writing a new script fictionalizing their search for him, which takes the form of true romance. Avery conceded that in the end, Quentin had only used his original manuscript as a jumping off point and took no credit for the final work. They would work together again on the script for Pulp Fiction, and Tarantino would later executive produce Avery's directorial debut, Killing Zoe. Here we go. Looking back at True Romance, almost 30 years after its initial release, I suppose the most impressive thing about it is how little it has aged, how contemporary it remains in virtually all of its aspects. It's also one of those rare movies that literally explodes with fresh talent at every turn. Some of it new, some of it raw, and some of it, like Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken, familiar, but taking us to newer and headier heights. This is some pretty heady mezcal. It's a good time, a good story audaciously told, but it's also a rough ride in places, even for audiences that consider themselves open-minded. Even the most enthusiastic reviews it received held back, giving it no more than three or three and a half star reviews. Jack Garner of the Gannett News Service said, quote, file this film under not for everyone, but note, it's a winner, end quote. And you know what's coming. It was not a commercial success. So why did things go south at the box office for this irresistible movie? Well, for one thing, Warner Brothers' publicity department had no clue of how to promote it. It was too romantic to be sold as a crime picture. It was too violent to be sold as a love story. Even toned down from its original cut, there was concern. Was it still too strong? Was that one scene going to offend black people? Tony Scott went on record as saying that he thought of true romance as a black comedy, but surely there's too much tragedy in it for that. Bittersweet, hilarious, outrageous, sentimental. And so full of movie trivia, was anybody outside of Los Angeles going to understand all this? In short, it was one of the hardest things in the world to sell something original that rivets its audience from a place between the cracks of traditional genre. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone was not wrong when he called the film dynamite. It was basically handled like that truckload of nitroglycerin in Clouseau's The Wages of Fear. In the end, Warner Brothers advertising ended up showing pictures of the cast with the tagline, stealing, cheating, killing, who says romance is dead? Did the executive who came up with that even see the picture? That kind of callous amorality has nothing to do with the picture, not really. Reviews of the film just added to the confusion with headlines like, True Romance, Not for the Faint of Heart. Janet Maslin of the New York Times said that it was, quote, sure to offend a good-sized segment of the movie-going population, end quote. Roger Ebert wrote that the film, quote, feels at times like a fire sale down at the cliché factory. Leave your brains at the door. There isn't a moment of true romance that stands up under much thought, yet the energy and style of the movie are exhilarating, end quote. And that was one of the more positive reviews. 
I would also blame some of the bad pre-publicity the film received from its issues with the MPAA. Because of the film's censorship battles, the details of the film's ending were mentioned in print before anyone had a chance to see the film. This was before spoiler etiquette. The problem with the film getting an NC-17 was not that people wouldn't go to see it, but that many theaters simply wouldn't play a film with that rating. But also, in 1993, we were in the early years of the home video era. A growing number of film fans were getting savvy about movies and were only interested in seeing the version the director wanted them to see. This growing number of people simply wouldn't pay to see a film they knew was cut. They could wait for the director's cut to arrive on VHS or Laserdisc, which were the two main formats of that time. If you look at Tony Scott's filmography on the IMDb, it's staggering to see how much money Top Gun grossed. But it was an enormous publicity machine. What is even more astounding is how much money some of his other pictures, like Days of Thunder and The Last Boy Scout, actually grossed. Those are films no one really mentions much anymore. In the course of his career, Tony Scott had very few flops. Budgeted at $12.5 million, True Romance grossed approximately $12.3 million. It lost money. But at this stage in Scott's career, he could be forgiven a modest failure, especially one that everyone in the business knew was not only a great film, but a harbinger of great things to come. Over time, as it was discovered on cable television and home video, it eventually did much better than break even and came to be recognized as one of the outstanding films of its era. Likewise, with each passing decade, his debut feature, The Hunger, gains more and more recognition as one of the best films of its kind, one of the best vampire films ever made. And how much can it really hurt for The Hunger to fail to entirely recoup its $10 million budget when Beverly Hills Cop's $28 million budget paid out almost $300 million at the box office? No, I don't think that's necessary. Playing Boris Lee's bodyguard and coffee maker is Eric Allen Kramer. One of his earliest roles was as the mighty Thor in the TV movie The Incredible Hulk Returns back in 1988. His impressive physique was also exploited when he played the coveted role of Ator in Joe D'Amato's Ator the Mighty, 1990 which may not be your cup of tea, but I'd bet Quentin grilled him about the experience if they ever got together. I certainly would. He also played recurring or regular characters on the series Down Home, Bob, The Hewleys, Hollywood Residential, Good Luck Charlie, where he also directed two episodes, and Guidance. And believe it or not, he also played Alan Hale Jr., the skipper himself, in the TV movie Surviving Gilligan's Island. Got more taste in my penis. <laughs> this guy's really fucking funny. The cutaways to Cody and Nikki serve not only to remind us that Elliot is wired if his clammy demeanor wasn't enough reminder, but to toggle the suspense, preventing the audience from falling into the comfort zone that is outwardly prevailing at the meeting itself. They also underline the fact that we should all be comfortable in laughing, which might be difficult for some viewers who were really out of their depth with such wild card material. Saul Rubinek is terrific in this scene, exuding the menschy quality that belies who Lee Donowitz really is. I'm not satisfied until the spoon stands straight up. 
Clarence's liking for lots of sugar is established early on in the film, and both Lee and Alabama comment on it. Jerry, both of whom were in Nam saw coming home in a body bag. They said to me, Clarence, that is the most accurate Vietnam film they'd ever seen. I'll tell you something, Clarence. When veterans of that bullshit war say that about my project, it makes the whole thing worthwhile. Here's to you. My friend, I'm calling you my friend, I just met you. You know why? I think because we got the same interests. You know what I'd like to do right now? I'd like to see Dr. Zhivago. I mentioned earlier how everyone in this film seems to have a cinematic point of reference. So it's very fitting that the code name for Clarence's Coke stash is Dr. Zhivago, the title of David Lean's 1965 epic film set in Russia with lots and lots of snow. Downstairs, something new has been added. The mob is showing up. Uh, Lee, that is all practically uncut. If you uh, so desire, you cut that a hell of a lot more. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll desire. Boris, give me another cup of coffee, will you? Me too, Boris. I have to hand it to you, Clarence. This is not nose garbage. It's quality stuff. Perfect merchandise. The only trouble is, whenever I'm offered a deal, it's too good to be true. It's because it's a lie. Why don't you convince me you're on the level? Convince me. If you don't bite, Link, I should accept possession. Boris, we got all kinds of sandwich shit back there. Make something for somebody, all right? We got lean pastrami, nice ride. Anybody want anything? When Dick asks for an aspirin, it brings us back to what's going on inside him. And to find out that he's got a headache makes us do a bit more than just bounce off of him. When he says that, it provides me with another possible reason for that moment of silence with Clarence before they all headed out the door to this meeting. Dick has a headache. Even though he's meeting Lee Donowitz, he's not all that happy to be here. And I now begin to think that what he really wanted to say to Clarence was, Hey, buddy, now that I've actually got something to live for, why don't I just hang out here with my man Floyd, pass on all this cocaine bullshit, and wait for you and your blushing bride to come back here? I'm going to be on the new T.J. Hooker. I don't really need to meet Lee Donowitz. I bet that's it. Sometimes the film seems to check its points a little too emphatically, but frankly, it's necessary in a film that wants to be a blockbuster. For some viewers, the compensation may seem a little too heavy-handed or remedial, but it's present to make sure that everyone is being as entertained as they can possibly be. Elliot wasn't supposed to tell you anything. He's not a dirty cop. This, on the other hand, is a subtle point that viewers may miss. Clarence explains his stash to Elliot as the lucky find of a cop of his acquaintance. Elliot then passes this intel along to Lee by saying that it was found by a, quote, dirty cop, end quote. But when Clarence hears this characterization, he jumps to the defense of this supposedly theoretical character. This is just my own spidey sense tingling, but I think this may be, or at least it could be, some backstory. Suppose Clarence's father, Cliff, an ex-cop, got bounced off the force for doing something just like this once upon a time. Suppose that's where Clarence got the idea for his explanation. It would sure explain a lot. And when Lee asks Clarence, why should he trust you with this deal? Clarence answers, we grew up together, that's why. Which I think nails my theory. 
While I don't know any personally, but being as informed as I am by my own TV viewing, I would say that one of the more common former occupations of security guards is policemen. You got problems? <laughs> right, right. Sorry. And Elliot knows me. Elliot, here. Call Joe. Tell that cocksucker that the production manager he forced on me is taking 30 cents of every dollar and putting it in his own pocket. Don't you want to count your money? No, that's all right. She can count it. I'm going to go to the bathroom. Give it to her. The suspense ratchets up further with the reintroduction of the mentor. The last time Elvis mentored Clarence, he came out guns ablazing. So this little soul session is cause for some concern. What's most impressive about this section of the movie is that it's actually the last of three critical 10-minute sequences. The one between Cliff and Kakati, the one involving Alabama and Virgil, and this one, which has the most ambitious architecture of the entire floor plan. We've got Elliot wearing the wire, we've got the cops listening in, we've got Clarence trying to win Lee's confidence. We've got a couple of guys on site with submachine guns. And now we've got Elvis advising a little less conversation, a little more action, please. Now we're into John Woo Mexican standoff mode. Lee's second security guy is Monty, played by Patrick John Hurley. In 2009, Hurley played none other than Oliver Stone in a nine-minute short film by Norman L'Esperance called Killing Tarantino. It's already a Mexican standoff, but here's some extra hot sauce on the way. Victor Argo, at screen left, also worked with Christopher Walken in Abel Ferrara's New Rose Hotel, 1998, and with Anna Thompson in Amos Colick's Fast Food, Fast Women, and Bridget, 2002. He passed away in April 2004 at the age of 69. Val Kilmer made his film debut as the fictitious rock star Nick Rivers in the comedy Top Secret, 1984. He then shot to stardom under Tony Scott's wing in Top Gun, playing Tom Cruise's rival, the Iceman, followed by his extraordinary performance as Jim Morrison in Oliver Stone's The Doors. Since then, he's played Batman, Simon Templer, Moses, twice actually, Willem de Koenig, John Johnny Wad Holmes, Mark Twain, and a few times, even himself. Officer Dimes? Officer Dimes? What? Um, this has nothing to do with me anymore, right? Okay. So I'm just gonna leave. And you guys just settle this by yourself, all right? Just shut up and stay the fuck put, Elliot. How do you know his name? Now Elliot has just put himself out there, next to the valise of cocaine stashed under the bed and the post-it note on Clifford's refrigerator. He's the one weak link in the standoff, and he stupidly brings down the whole house of cards by trying to squirm out of it. As the gathering goes completely south, the glistening synth work on the soundtrack grows tremulous and begins to sour.
Nikki Dimes, Chris Penn, ultimately brings down Clarence, and it's interesting that this is all that really matters. Almost everyone else in this shootout is dead. Lee, Elliot, Cody, Boris. However, Dick Ritchie just might get to meet Captain Curtin after all. I find this bullet hole lighting effect hilarious for some reason. It's like an in-joke by 1993, but I remember the first time I saw such an effect done in Mario Bava's Evil Eye, 1962, and it was certainly fresh there. This is fresh in a different way. There's no source for it, but it looks good. It looks like Nikki Dimes is taking cover by a living room video projection system. <laughs> In Tarantino's original script, Clarence didn't survive this shootout. Tony Scott disagreed with that version of events. In the copy of the script that I've seen, dated August 1992, the ending is already rewritten. In an essay about the film written for the publication Projections 3, Tarantino had this to say, quote, When I read the new ending in which Clarence survives, I felt that it worked. I just didn't think it was as good an ending as mine. My ending has a symmetry with the whole piece. At first, I was really distressed about it, but we got together and talked about it, and Tony said that he wanted to change the ending, not for commercial reasons, but because he really liked these kids and wanted to see them get away." End quote. Tarantino's explanation is seemingly at odds with stories told by filmmaker William Lustig, whose many fine exploitation films include Maniac and Tarantino's favorite Vigilante, which starred future Jackie Brown cast member Robert Forster. Lustig remembers being first in line to direct True Romance, whose script first came into his hands when he was looking for someone to write the sequel for his successful film Relentless. He allegedly optioned the script and developed it with Roger Avery to a point where it was within weeks of being greenlit with a different cast. According to Lustig, in an interview with Greasy Kid Stuff magazine, quote, In Quentin's script, Clarence dies in the end. It's very poignant and inevitable. It just feels right for the movie. In trying to obtain financing for the film, though, there was some backlash about the principal character dying, as there always is with things like that. So Roger and I came up with a really sappy ending and slapped it on the script with the intent that we may or may not use it. But we wanted it there for the purpose of obtaining financing, and it made it into the movie word for word. I was shocked. It was just awful. The original ending was like A Better Tomorrow. That is what I wanted to shoot. End quote. But of course, he never had the chance. Lustig says that his interest in the picture was bought out by Warner Brothers once Tony Scott took an active interest in the property. Tarantino's ending would have brought Clarence full circle into his psychotic alliance with dead Elvis. He would have lived fast, died young, and left a good-looking corpse. But that isn't how Elvis Presley himself died, on a toilet from a heart attack prompted by too much fast food too much prescription medication and chronic constipation. The most elegant explanation of Clarence's survival, I think, comes from Christian Slater himself, who was originally in favor of his character coming to a bad end. He said, quote, when I first read the script, I thought it was a good idea for Clarence to go because it made sense. These people were living such a fast, chaotic, spontaneous, and insane life that it couldn't last. Things couldn't end up happily. But then again, this is the movies, end quote. 
This is the lobby of the Ambassador Hotel, 3400 Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. Though it looks like any other four-star hotel, this is production magic at work. It was actually a disused hotel, which had been closed to the public since 1989. It was eventually demolished in 2005. This exterior sign tells us that this is the Beverly Ambassador Hotel with an address of 551. This is all fictional detail. There is no such hotel, nor was there at the time of filming. As Alabama hustles Clarence into the caddy and drives off, the film segues to a peach-hued reality. The steel drums rise once again in optimism, and the reintroduction of Alabama's diaristic voiceover brings us back to where we began with her opening narration. This is her story, and though she has actually saved Clarence, to her mind, he has saved her. He is both her hero and savior. My thoughts were so clear and true. That three words went through my mind endlessly, repeating themselves like a broken record. You're so cool. You're so cool. You're so cool. And sometimes Clarence asked me what I would have done if he had died, if that bullet had been two inches more to the left. To this, I always smile, as if I'm not going to satisfy him with a response. But I always do. I tell him of how I would want to die, that the anguish and the want of death would fade like the stars at dawn. The young man playing their son is Enzo Rossi, Patricia Arquette's son with actor Paul Rossi, He's been in several films and television roles over the years, always his mother's projects. At the time he appeared in True Romance, he had already been featured in the role of Raphael in The Indian Runner. He's now in his 30s. In this heartlifting coda, the presence of the steel drum theme makes sense of its recurring presence throughout the film. It has always emanated from this place of fulfillment, along with Alabama's narration and we can see the characters getting a sense of the time and place whenever they express or have reason to feel hope. That's what the entire film is about, ultimately, the joy of a happy ending, which lends a galloping cadence to the steel drums as they carry us across the finish line. As if anything further was needed to prove this film's lasting quality, here are two items worthy of note. In case you don't know, there was, at least for a while, such a thing as True Romance Fest, an annual celebration of this film by its fans that was actually held at the Safari Inn where portions of the film were shot. It was held in 2014, 2015, and 2018, and the programming included a Q&A with select cast members, an open-air nighttime screening of the film, food trucks, live music, a cash bar, and for those who went for the primo package deal, breakfast with Elliot Blitzer himself. Bronson Pinchot. But the most incredible proof lies in an almost ritualistic recreation of the film some years back on December 16th, 2015, when Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette reunited to perform a live table reading of Tarantino's script at the theater at Ace Hotel in Los Angeles. The performance was first announced as taking place at the 600-seat Bing Theater at LACMA, but the demand for tickets was so overwhelming that the event had to be moved to another location, which could accommodate a further thousand people. Arquette and Slater were accompanied on stage that evening by J.K. Simmons in the role of Clifford Worley, Kevin Pollack 
as both Vincenzo Piccotti and Elvis Presley, and John Favreau as Virgil, among other performers, with the script narration read by the evening's presenter, Jason Reitman. In a review of the evening written for Variety by Matthew Chernoff, it was said that, quote, it was Slater and Arquette who truly owned the night, rivaling Bonnie and Clyde. Their chemistry together was nothing short of magic. Clad in her character's iconic leopard print coat and baby blue sunglasses, Arquette looked as though she'd stepped directly off the movie screen. As the reading began, Slater seemed genuinely amused by the audience's gleeful reaction to his first monologue. Their cheers momentarily threw him, but he quickly recovered, delivering a performance that was so smooth it appeared as though he'd been rehearsing for months, when in fact he was reading it cold. As read by Simmons and Pollock, the Moorish invasion sequence was a true showstopper, eliciting major laughs from the sheer audaciousness of the writing, end quote. True Romance had something better than a big opening weekend. It had, and continues to have, a shelf life. In the year 2017, Empire Magazine rated True Romance as the 83rd greatest film of all time, and in 2021, the same publication placed it as number six on a list of the 60 best romantic films of all time, above Annie Hall, above Titanic, and above Gone with the Wind. It was preceded in favor only by The Princess Bride, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Brief Encounter, Casablanca, and at number one, When Harry Met Sally. I think it's worth pointing out that none of those preferred titles were road pictures, so your mileage may differ. In memory of Tony Scott, Dennis Hopper, Chris Penn, and Victor Argo, and dedicated to all true romanticists everywhere. I'm Tim Lucas, and you're so cool for watching this movie with me. Thank you.